This is The Guardian. After nearly two years, is power sharing in Northern Ireland finally back? The package of measures in totality does provide a basis for our party to nominate members to the Northern Ireland Executive. Things look promising, but there's still a bit of a way to go. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak is still trying to stay afloat as his party is consumed by yet more factional plotting. He needs to stop messing around and get behind the leader. The fact of the matter is, most people in the country are not interested in all of this Westminster tittle-tattle. That's Kemi Badenoch's take on all this before it was revealed by The Guardian that she herself was in a WhatsApp group rather subtly called Evil Plotters. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This pantomime cannot go on. Oh, yes, it can. Oh, no, it can't. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is Pippa Carrera, The Guardian's political editor. Hello. After some very late-night discussions and meetings on Monday, the Democratic Unionist Party finally agreed on a potential deal to bring back power-sharing in Northern Ireland. Let's hear a bit from Geoffrey Donaldson, that party's leader. I believe that with the faithful delivery of this package of measures, hard work and dedication, we will be able to look back on this moment as the defining time when Northern Ireland's place within the Union was safeguarded and our place within the United Kingdom internal market was restored. Over the coming period, we will work alongside others to build a thriving Northern Ireland firmly within the Union for this and succeeding generations. It's been nearly two years since the DUP essentially dismantled the Northern Ireland executive over post-Brexit trading rules. The DUP said back then that checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain would undermine Northern Ireland's position in the UK. Underneath that was a pretty obvious visceral dislike of the idea of a Sinn Féin first minister, which became an issue after Sinn Féin won regional elections in May 2022. And yet here we are, Pippa. On Monday night, the DUP met with members to discuss the proposals. It went late into the night and at one point police were brought in. Can you talk us through the details or broad details of that drama? Yeah, it was pretty astonishing really because we've been in this position many times when we're on the verge of a breakthrough of an agreement involving the DUP and the sort of pressures mounted, the expectations mounted and then at the last minute it's collapsed. So I think everyone was kind of going into this latest round with eyes wide open even though there had been all the indications, uh, both the sort of the privacy of the meeting, hiding away in a country house in the countryside down a long avenue, and sort of the vetting of those who were those who were invited to it, indicating that there could actually this time finally be a breakthrough on the cards. And I mean, I'm not often up late on Monday nights, but I happened to be up late this Monday night. And throughout the evening, there was this live tweeting by a unionist blogger called Jamie Bryson. <laughs> Um, of pretty much everything that Jeffrey Donaldson was saying during this five-hour meeting. And he had like he had slideshows and all the rest of it. Because it, people in the room had their phones on them, he was able to report how irate they were within this meeting because they could see his they could see his tweets and they were sort of you know saying oh, put away your phones everyone turn off your phones and then they said somebody suggested that the police might be responsible because the PSNI were actually in the room for security for security 
point of view. And then the police were asked and the, and the chair of the meeting had to say, no, no, don't be ridiculous. It's nothing to do with the police. But then the police were asked to sort of bring in blocking, signal blocking devices <laughs> because all this information was leaking. Yeah, and it continued. I mean, he, he however, whoever his mole was or however he was, he was overhearing, tapping into um, or listening to what was going on in the room. It was really quite farcical, but that shouldn't uh, deflect from the fact that by the end of it, Jeffrey Donaldson had managed to get a breakthrough, get his party on board with this agreement, which now paves the way this week, finally, after two years, for power being restored at Stormont. You say that, but there is a fragility to the DUP's position. Inasmuch as Jeffrey Donaldson, it said, has agreed to a deal which is opposed by 40% of his senior colleagues. And as far as they're concerned, he's made and then subsequently broken promises that he made. So, you know, this looks hopeful, but from the DUP's position, it's less than ideal. I think there's always a fragility in Northern Ireland politics. I mean, whether that is in policy or whether that is in personalities, we've seen countless examples of it over over the years. I mean, David Trimble was a rebel who had then got to the table when it came to the Good Friday Agreement. Jeffrey Donaldson, then at the UUP, stormed out of the Good Friday talks and is now back at the table and, and sort of reaching a deal on behalf of his party. Individual politicians make those make those journeys. And, you know, we haven't heard a huge amount of dissent apart from a couple of voices. He's been praised, Jeffrey Donaldson's been praised by politicians in the in the you know UK politicians for being brave and and being prepared to to get round the table and to and to strike this agreement, and while it may be the case that his long term fate is sealed as a result of this, then if this is his legacy, and I think a lot of people, probably including him, would take that. What do you think is the single biggest change contained in this deal? It's definitely about goods. It's that the post Brexit checks on goods uh, which travelled from you know Warrington to to Derry or from London to Belfast with final destination being in Northern Ireland, are going to be removed as part of this deal. That is called, called the Green Lane currently, the Green Lane process, which means a number of them get checked and they arrive from Great Britain. And they're going to drop that. And that's the key concession, scrapping that. The DUP is absolutely against any so-called Irish border for goods destined to remain in the UK. Um, and it looks like... So far, that's what they, they've got what they wanted. There's an interesting set of questions about the timing of all this, at least some of which, it seems, is, is centred on money for Northern Ireland. Public services are in crisis in Northern Ireland. We've just seen the latest instalment of a huge sort of spurt of public sector strikes. There is a sense that things are happening in Northern Ireland that can't go on. That's a big factor in all this, isn't it? It is. I mean, obviously, the key bit of it and the reason why Stormont hasn't been sitting, why the GDP blocked it from sitting the last two years is because of post-Brexit checks. And the big ask for them was that those routine post-Brexit checks on goods which went from Great Britain with their final destinations in Northern Ireland, so not going on any further to Ireland and therefore the EU, would be removed. And that was the big ask. But also as part of the deal, there is going to be a Commons vote which you know, to put into law what's been agreed, including on some of the constitutional elements. And then, as you say, John, this big financial offer, a £3.3 billion pound financial package that's conditional on Stormont's restoration. And that includes funding for things like pay rises, which could avert yeah, the massive yeah. public... There's a general strike in, Ireland, in Northern Ireland last week, so it could avert those public sector strikes. So it's a sort of a much-needed financial settlement 
for the province. I think one interesting fact on that, though, I think is is going to be the knock-on because the suggestion that it could also include a sort of rewriting of the Barnet formula, which is how um, money gets reallocated to different regions within the within nations uh, within the UK. And you can see a world where, just as this agreement's been settled with Stormont, that Edinburgh and Cardiff might start asking for more as well. So we'll have to watch that one. Yeah, there could be a couple of knock-on effects from all this. We'll come on to another one in a moment. Um, it's an interesting question about Sinn Féin in the midst of all this. They have said that this new deal with the Sinn Féin First Minister means that a united Ireland is, quote, within touching distance. That is provocative talk from a loyalist perspective. I mean, clearly, these tensions are always there within power sharing. You know, that's taken as read. But um, that was quite striking, I thought, that use of language. Yeah, and of course, the reason for the for Stormont not sitting was about post-Brexit border checks. But also, let's not forget, Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin is likely to be the first Sinn Féin first minister. And she'll have a, she'll have a DUP deputy, but they have equal power. But nevertheless, that's a, you know, that's a big moment. And, you know, we asked Downing Street about that, whether the prospect of a United Ireland was, was more likely. And they pointed us to the fact that, of course, there is very strict and limited criteria set out in the Good Friday Agreement for the calling of a border poll within Northern Ireland. And, you know, you'd have to, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland would have to be very clear that a majority of those voting would express a wish that it should cease to be part of the UK and be reunited with Ireland instead. And it doesn't feel like we're at that point yet. Yeah, and each side in power sharing, a point like this has to reassure its supporters, right? And that, that use of language may be a, a case in point. Um, let's talk about Brexit. Sam Coates on Sky News pointed out on Tuesday evening that it seemed as if this deal was trying to do three things which are in various ways are mutually incompatible. The first is tell the DUP that something has changed about the way Britain relates to Northern Ireland and they're getting rid of checks. The second is telling the EU nothing has changed. And the third is telling Tory Brexiteers that everything is fine and this doesn't stop the UK from embracing Brexit freedoms. That was his view of it, that these three things were sort of implied by this and that those three things can't simultaneously be true. That sounds a bit complicated, but if you think about it for a minute, there is a lot to that. There is. And I mean, this is, I think, the big potential flashpoint still in that Downing Street has said, the British government has said that while the deal contains significant, its words, changes to the Windsor Framework's operations, it's not actually about altering the fundamentals of the framework. And let's not forget that the Windsor framework was probably the highlight of Rishi Sunak's premiership so far. Everybody said for ages, oh, you're never going to be able to rewrite the Northern Ireland Protocol, never going to get agreement, uh, never going to get both, you know, get the DUP and the ERG, the Tory Brexiteers, and the European Union on board. And lo and behold, he did it and kind of like underlined in his mind his credentials as a deal maker. So we're now having Downing Street say to us, no, no, it's not actually... Don't worry, European Union. Don't worry, Brussels. Don't worry, Dublin. We're not actually changing the fundamentals of the framework here. We didn't need your permission for this. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how this command paper and, and following legislation is, is received. They're going to be what they call these um, EU-UK joint committee meetings of officials. And apparently the changes are going to be examined at those in the coming weeks. But, you know, you can absolutely see why Brussels would want to be keeping a very close eye on this. Internal changes are one thing, external, an absolute no-no. It's interesting, even now, there are signs about how jumpy the government is about all this. I mean, it's refusing so far, for example, to say whether talks with the EU took place in advance of this, right? When clearly they did, 
but they're just nervous enough that they're not going to let on for fear of some of their own side not liking it. Yeah, I mean, I think the EU inevitably will have had to be kept up to date on all of this because they couldn't have reached this point without without doing that. Um, and it's interesting, just very, obviously it's all very new, but looking at the reaction from the Tory right, I mean, we had Boris Johnson warning about Brexit freedoms. We had a couple of other Tory Brexiteers sort of sitting up in the Commons and saying, oh, what does this mean for, you know, alignment and divergence? But there is going to be a meeting of the ERG and the, the signalling so far from those senior members of that group is that they're minded to back the government. So if you've got people like Bill Cash signing up, the veteran Eurosceptic signing up to uh, the changes, then you know it takes the heat out of it a bit. It's it's sort of less dramatic for the government in terms of its own party management and the pressure that it that Rishi Sunak would be under eternal, internally. And there is one line of thought that you know, there's a recognition that actually the government's not going to be in place for that much longer so that any opportunities for divergence from EU laws under this government are going to be pretty limited anyway. And if they happen, it would happen post-election, potentially under a Labour government, which would take a different approach to all of this anyway. So why bother getting all hit up about it when it probably ain't going to happen? At least one of our colleagues um, said in response to this that probably the only way to keep this deal together would be by keeping UK and EU regulations in alignment, which is exactly the kind of thing that the Jacob Rees-Moggs and Bill Cashes of this world absolutely hate. But your your point would be that they've realised there's no point in acting up because they've only got a few months left, potentially. It's one theory, John, is one theory. <laughs> it takes us back to where we were before, that maybe the best lid you can put on Tory infighting is the sense that, come on, lads, soon the party's going to be over. Right, on that note, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll talk about the continuing, ongoing Tory psychodrama and yet more plotting. Welcome back. Pippa is still with me, and we're also joined now by Katie Balls, the political editor at The Spectator. Hi, Katie. Hello. Let's talk about the ever-fascinating internal and external state of the Conservative Party. Another week is here, uh, and here comes another instalment of the ongoing internal Tory comedy drama. We weren't sure of the film genre to pick. It's definitely not a rom-com, so we went for comedy drama. Leadership plotting, the arrival of yet another Tory grouping, and a big issue for Conservatives to tear themselves apart over. This time, it is cigarette smoking and disposable vapes. The government essentially says it wants to ban buying cigarettes and disposable vapes for anyone born on or after the 1st of January 2009, which, you can argue, entails a strange prospect in the future of 49-year-olds asking 50-year-olds to surreptitiously buy them their nicotine fix. I think that's a fair deduction. Almost immediately... There was the start of a Tory outcry uh, about this move, and it came initially from Sunak's great political friend, ha-ha, Liz Truss, who called the move on vapes and cigarettes profoundly unconservative. Katie, why do you think he wants to have the fight? I think because on Liz, it's something which he does really strongly believe in. He's a teetotal prime minister who is pretty aghast that so many people spoke. and Doesn't even eat for 36 hours every week, we found <laughs> out. Well, exactly. That's how he is. So therefore, I think it's something he instinctively doesn't like. And then also, if you think back to when it was first announced, which was Tory party conference, it was meant to be one of those free radical policies to show he was a change candidate. So ah, he's yes, trying yes. to use it to show something else, which I think he probably is failing at. 
Pippa, do you think there's a, an element of uh, trying to nail down some semblance of a legacy here? That's probably part of it. I mean, he's probably sitting there looking at the next few months and thinking, well, you know, potentially I'm going to be in power for anywhere between three and, and, and nine months. And, you know, I think he's probably realistic enough privately to recognise that things aren't looking that great for his electoral prospects right now. And he's thinking, well, what can I do to show everyone, uh, not just that to leave a legacy, but to show people that I could make some you know, pretty fundamental differences. And as Katie says, he's not seeing it as a sort of a, he didn't want to fight with the right over it, but he does feel quite strongly that there isn't anything unconservative about, as he sees it, caring about our children's health. It's maybe worth noting that when big divisive issues come round the corner, some Tories tend to start up a research group. I'm looking forward to the cigarette research group or the CRG, <laughs> which may be a long in due course. Anyway, um, this has happened in the midst of yet more internal Tory tensions there now seems to be a minority hardcore who still want rid of rishi sunak before the election and a new leader even though they might only have a matter of weeks months left that's true is it not katie yeah there are a small block at the moment of mps and those associated with the tory party who would like rishi sunak to be ousted um you have two publicly in terms of calling for them to and simon clark and andrea jenkins I think you could probably put Lord Frost in there, um, yeah. given he said before Christmas, maybe MPs need to think about doing that unthinkable again. Um, and then after that, I think none have come out yet, but probably the best place to look would be the 11 MPs who voted against a Rwanda bill at third reading. They tend to be the biggest critics. Okay. As, I, as you mentioned, one of the leading voices in that sort of minority hardcore is Andrea Jenkins, who said very pointed things very recently about Rishi Sunak. I would have liked to have checked what she said about, about uh, the Prime Minister. So I went on Twitter, but she's blocked me, and it took me ages to find out why. <laughs> That's because when she was given a damehood, thanks to Boris Johnson in 2023, I said that like was, that was like getting a Soviet honour from a leader of the Soviet Union in 1985. In other words, at the fag end of the Soviet Union, and she obviously didn't like it. So that was the end of my Twitter following of Andrea Jenkins. Anyway, she popped up on Sky TV in the studio while holding her dog, a miniature schnauzer, uh, and sounded very, very outspoken in a way you wouldn't really expect necessarily of an MP from the party of government when she was asked about who she did and didn't like and the upper reaches of her party. Let's have a listen to that. You bung on the records saying you want Rishi Sunak out, you want a yes. replacement. Would you like to see Kemi Badenoch come through the ranks? Oh, God, no, definitely not, no. I mean, Kemi, in Parliament, she's known as a great pretender. Because if you look at a voting record, it's not like the rhetoric. She's great on the wokest stuff, but she voted for Theresa May's deals. She voted for um, more net zero. So she's not like she says she is. Then, of course, you've got senior Tory figures who are clearly on manoeuvres in advance of what they see as an inevitable defeat. So they're not really going to get going until as and when the Tories lose. One of them clearly is the woman Andrea Jenkins just mentioned, Kemi Badenoch. Pippa, you had an exclusive about her recently. Uh, and the fact that uh, although she says outwardly, publicly, we, the Tories have got to stick with the Prime Minister, <laughs> uh, her WhatsApp activity may uh, point things in a different direction. She was asked a lot about Tory plotting and these different factions that we've talked about um, and, you know, whether she has had leadership ambitions and all those sorts of things. And she got incredibly frustrated as she went around a variety of television and radio studios um, and basically told party rebels to stop messing around and to get behind Rishi Sunak. And then we had this story the following day. Somebody had told me that she was actually a member of a Tory WhatsApp group 
Evil Plotters with Michael Gove and a number of her sort of closest acolytes, her closest political supporters who backed her during the leadership campaign. And that while she was not trying to sort of push the prime minister out now, she's not taking the explosive approach of some of her some of her colleagues. She is very much planning. This campaign is still going on, very much planning for what should happen as and when Rishi Sunak does decide to go. And the self-styled evil plotters, Katie, that's all about Kemi Badenoch and her ambitions. It's centred on her. Is that correct? Friends of Kemi Badenoch would say if she was really an evil plotter and plotting evilly, would she call the group it that? She might be a bit more subtle. Um, but I but I think Subtlety, no. what it does point to is the fact that Kemi Badenoch's name keeps coming up in every, you know, every time you hear from the different various plotters about what might happen after Rishi Sunak, there's often talk of, well, Kemi Badenoch could come in. And I think that it's now got to the point where her team keep having to repeatedly deny that she's got anything to do with this. And there's a question for Kemi Badenoch in terms of her leadership ambitions, which is how close does she want to look to this government? Because at the moment, she risks looking as low as she's potentially disloyal, so as to keep coming out and saying she's very loyal. But that could eventually work against her if there is a very bad Tory defeat led by Rishi Sunak. And what does she want politically or ideologically? I mean, this is all very confusing very often, but where does she sit relative to the Trussites? Because they're sort of very, very convinced about free marketeers. Is she one of them or is there are there differences between her and that particular camp? I, th- I think there are differences in the sense you've got to remember Michael Gove endorsed Kemi Bader. Oh, yeah, he's not a free marketeer. In the Tory leadership campaign. And actually in terms of, obviously all this stuff is very crude and not quite right, but in terms of the spectrum, I think Suella Braverman would be to the right of Kemi Badenoch. There are some MPs on the right who have said to me, you know, my heart is with Suella, but my head is with Kemi. Um, <laughs> effectively because... Kemi is more seen as a pragmatic Brexiteer than perhaps the more idealistic wing. And if you think about the fights Kemi Badenoch has had when it comes to the ERG on retained EU law, effectively telling them to get over it, um, they're going to have to change some some of those parts. I think that she is more willing to compromise. She was also the only candidate other than Rishi Sunak who said you might have to wait for tax cuts when she ran that time around. So I think she is positioning herself almost as if there, are two, if there are two options on the right, she is the pragmatic right compared to the more idealistic. Okay. The Labour Party in its more febrile moments, you often hear this phrase, he, she's in a good place or he's in a good place. And it sounds like by you know the standards of the Conservative Party, that applies to Kemi Badenoch here. Now, I mentioned the Trussites and Liz Truss only a couple of seconds ago. Let's get on to them. Liz Truss, Pippa, is about to launch another new Tory grouping called, perhaps ironically, Popular Conservatives. Or Popcorn, as it's being commonly commonly known. Popcorn without the R. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about them and the effect they may have or not. This is Simon Clark's lot as well, isn't it? Although, well, it was Simon Clark's Ah! lot until... (laughs) Maybe not anymore. Until Simon Clark decided to put his head above the parapet and join Andrew Jenkin and being one of a very, very small number of Conservative MPs saying publicly that Rishi Sunak should go this side of an election or risk leading the party into electoral oblivion. And then he was kind of sidelined and sort of, you know, name dropped from the, the lights above the above the show. The other big name involved in this is is Jacob Rees-Mogg. You may have heard of him before. And it's not actually the first group that 
Liz Truss has been involved in. I mean, when we talked about the five families ahead of the Rwanda vote. Yeah, we talked about those a few weeks. Yeah, so there was basically different groupings on the Conservative right, and one of them was was her sort of her pro-growth group, um, which seems to have morphed into this popular conservatism movement, which she says is aimed at restoring restoring democratic accountability, presumably uh, relying on her great insight to to power to government that she she picked up during her her 45 days or 47 days or whatever it was um, in office. It is another fringe movement, right? You said it's sort of unclear very often where some of these groupings fit in relation to the famous or infamous five families. Um, now, I don't know whether this counts as a family or not, but just tell me about the Conservative Britain Alliance. I don't know whether they call themselves the CBA, but let's let's call them that. They for the do, sake of they it. do. Well, they well, don't they call do. themselves okay. anything because apparently they don't seem to exist. But for yeah, the sake of we, argument, we call them... This is Lord David Frost, and this is the bit of the Conservative Party which perhaps sort of shades over into Reform UK and forces and elements outside the Conservative Party. Is that correct? Yeah, this is the quite shady group in terms of mysterious former Tory donors who are bankrolling a series of damaging, slightly questionable polling done by YouGov, put in the Telegraph. Oh, yeah, the thing that was in the Telegraph. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And David Frost is officially the contact for this, the former cabinet minister who's now, of course, a Tory peer. He wrote pieces to accompany it, but he's not the person who paid for it. And he is refusing to tell the Tory whips who is behind it. The suspicion in government is that this must be to do with reform. It must be former Tory donors trying to help the reform party because they would argue strategically who actually thinks changing leader is going to lead the Tories to greatness this close to an election. So we don't know who's in the group. You've got a steady stream of donors coming out to say it's not them. Um I'm not Spartacus. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but but you do wonder how long. And then the question is, is this group also funding various figures, perhaps former advisors and so forth, to then do other things? Or how contained is it? Because you have the departure of Will Drive from Downing Street. He was Rishi Sunak's pollster. Turns out he looked at the polls and decided he didn't want to work for Rishi Sunak. He wanted to, to argue against his former boss. Um, and he has been doing some work with them. So this is the most anonymous of the groups. Does this get a bit like traitors, that TV show, in the sense <laughs> that everybody's going, are you one or are you one of the other lot? Are you, a, are you the political version of a faithful? Does it feel a bit like that sometimes? It, it, yeah, I guess it. I mean, I guess it does a bit. And it, it, this sort of intrigue as to write, as, around who's behind the, the CBA has gone on for a couple of weeks now. And actually, you mentioned sort of links with reform, but actually that's a really crucial point because if David Frost, who is a conservative peer, is seen as, as working with the enemy, effectively, to oust his or to put pressure on his party leader, then he could end up kicked out of the Tory party. And in fact, I think the chief whip in the House of Lords had a had a conversation along those lines last week with him, and and Frost apparently said that he couldn't t- he couldn't say who was behind the polling, but he could reassure them that it wasn't reform. So you know, taking his word for it. But you know, this is a man that wants a wants a Tory seat and wants to be in the selections list. And currently, I don't really think that's looking very likely to happen. Now, this story may well reach another sort of very wobbly moment for Rishi Sunak quite soon. Two by-elections are going to happen on February the 15th, one in Kingswood, the other in Wellingbury in Northamptonshire, Kingswood in Gloucestershire, uh, and the Tories may well lose them both. Um, the, the plotters are looking at clearly at big events such as by-elections and local elections, which you do at the start of May, in order to pounce. So that's a fair reading. So in other words, we can expect another great convulsion, can we, in all likelihood, in the wake of February the 15th? So I think the plotters will say that they are building up their plan. 
their grid of, um, they use a different word, but some form of excrement um, to get to the local elections in May. And in the two weeks after the local elections, that would be really the time to strike. Lay even right. can see doing it um, much later than that doesn't leave much time to turn things around before the election. Um, of course, it doesn't really take Sherlock to look at the parliamentary calendar, the things that are happening and realizing by-elections and the local elections could be bad for Rishi Sunak. It's been pretty obvious for a while that would be the danger point for him if people want to come for him. I think the question is, what else can they do to try and uh, make MPs come around to their way of thinking? For now, where the parliamentary party is, is very far away from where the small group of plotters are. Um, So what they would need to do in that time is find ways to make their money easy. And I think probably... The thing that could do that from their thinking is the Rwanda bill. You mentioned excrement a moment ago. It's impossible not to look at this, especially in the context of the fact we're talking still about the governing party. I think this is a shit show, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, your word's not mine, John. Uh, yeah, but come obviously. on. You know what um, I mean. It's sort of, un- I mean, it's unbelievable. Even the Labour Party, which towards the arse end of its time in power, is famously fond of tearing itself apart. I've never seen anything like this. Wait, I wonder, here's a question. Who do you think post-election, on the assumption that the Tories lose, could the party, this very fractious, divided party, conceivably unite around? Well, I think a lot of that depends on how many MPs are left, which you do think if you just continue to have a very small group, I think it is worth pointing out, but a group that is attracting a lot of attention and making noise, um, intent on undermining the efforts of the wider party, that defeat could be even worse. And you end up in a situation where whatever rump of MPs would be left would be very decisive. I think it probably would be a mix. If you look at those on the really safe seats, there's someone very much on the right, there's some Cameroons. I think you might end up with someone like Kemi Badenoch, just because I think she is someone who can get, for example, figures like the Govites, the 2017 intake she came in with are very loyal to her. And she can also have some appeal to the right. Whereas I think for someone like Suella Braverman, would they try and stop her going to the membership if she was blamed for some of the events that led up to that result? Looking at Rishi Sunak and what a torrid time of it he's having from elements within his own party, I often wonder now if he must be asking himself inwardly (laughs) why he's still doing the job. We all know he has a lovely life he can escape to any time he wants. Now, whatever he said about going to the country in the autumn, doesn't this tell you that it has to be sooner rather than later? Just Sunak must be thinking, I don't want to carry on much longer with this. And therefore, May becomes a very tempting option. I think you can read so many uh, different theories on the timing in the sense that you can argue, oh, yes, he wants it to be over. And also, why not move before the rebel plotters, uh, you know, have their chance after bad local election results? You could just yeah. make it on the local elections. Yeah. Um, I think if things were going incredibly badly, that's not impossible. But I do think um, in terms of... How are things not going incredibly badly? Well, what I would define incredibly badly, and (laughs) clearly going bad in terms of polling, what I mean is if you had a point where it really seemed as though the Tory party would have fallen apart, there'd be multiple attempts at serious coups. I don't take the Simon Clark one. In a way, it made Hewitt and Hoon look professional in terms of (laughs) the the levels there. Um, I I don't think one MP or a couple coming out, but if it seemed that there was a concerted block that we're going to stop what you were doing in Parliament, that we're going to keep coming out with these statements, um, you might decide that actually it's not going to get any better this year. You just need to go. But the strong preference by those who are heavily involved the campaign is an autumn election and that's what they'll be doing unless things really really go wrong 
Pippa, you, I've asked you this before. You have some sense, don't you, of like how on earth can this carry on? I mean, the idea that we have, what, another nine months of this before an election. Yeah, but I think you look at the choice facing Rishi Sunak and he either goes for an early election, which by, certainly as far as the polling is concerned and public attitude seems to suggest would be a, you know, a really poor result for him, or he waits six months and there's the possibility of events coming along or, you know, the economy improving dramatically, unexpectedly, or, you know, we've seen, the one thing we've learned about British politics over the last few years is that it's incredibly volatile <clears throat> and unpredictable and, you know, stuff happens. So it's a sort of a choice between certain defeat now and possible defeat later, then I think you'd probably go for the possible defeat later option. You keep me hanging on as Diana Ross and the Supermans <laughs> once sang. Katie and Pippa, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening out there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, as I always say, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more on Northern Ireland, the Guardian's Today in Focus podcast will be speaking to our Ireland correspondent Rory Carroll on Friday. This episode of Politics Weekly UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.